Welcome to the Africa Speaking Podcast. The podcast discusses critical issues about the African continent. It is brought to you by Toyota Communications in Nairobi. My name is Kimani Njogu. So tell me about yourself. My name is Juma Ondeng. I work with the National Museums of Kenya. I'm currently the keeper of antiquities, sites, and monuments in Western Kenya. Thank you, Juma, for joining me uh, to have a conversation. Um, and today we really want to focus on the whole question of restitution of cultural heritage uh, in Africa. In the last couple of years, we have had this word. We have had the word restitution. We have had the word repatriation of cultural heritage. And I have always wondered, why is this important for Africa? Why don't we just let things be? Thank you, Prof, for that question. Uh, restitution is very important for Africa for a number of reasons. One, uh, the methods through which these objects were acquired. There's a lot of violence associated with acquisition. Uh, we had so many uh, military punitive expeditions, and through them, objects were lost. Uh, people were killed, communities were decimated, and therefore, uh, this restriction is also part of righting the wrongs of the past. It's a human rights issue. So restitution is a human rights issue. Yes. It's the right of the African people yeah. to own that which belongs to them, yes. uh, that was pillaged, that was taken away at the point of colonialism. Yes. But is it through the colonial experience alone that things have left the continent or have things left even in the post-colonial period? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question too. Uh, objects have left even in the post-colonial period. Now, we had objects that left through what we we'll call legislative, uh, colonial legislations um, made us lose objects. Uh, you remember in Kenya, for example, there was the Witchcraft Act, and so many traditional med medicinal objects associated with traditional African Kenyan traditional uh, medicine uh, were confiscated, ostensibly to be destroyed. But as we know now, they ended up with Western in Western museums. Uh, later in the post-colonial uh, period, when African objects started were being viewed as objects of art in the global north, this led to massive pillage. Uh, you remember the cases of Bigango, which were then considered to be very precious. And even though Bigango, when you look at them technically, they are like human remains because people look at them as their ancestors. They are not just looked at as things. And so things have been stolen. We have even had museums being broken into and objects that are supposed to be in collection or exhibition stolen from this continent. No, you talk about Vigango. Um... And I, I have read about Vigango. Uh, it seems as if these are important cultural products as well as spiritual products from the coast of Kenya. Can you tell us a little bit about Vigango? Because not everybody knows what these Vigango really are. Because the, the word Vigango is actually uh, a Kiswahili word. Vigango, or those are plural, or Kigango is, is singular, are funerary posts that are constructed for a certain level of elders. So it's not everyone who gets a Kigango uh, after they are, they are, they are dead. Uh, but according to the Mijikenda community, what happens if an elder dies, they create a Kigango, which is then planted on the ground, 
there are rituals associated with that and these are then present uh, the departed soul uh, like in the physical uh, sense of it so they are the physical manifestation of the departed relatives and therefore the community do not just look at them as things they are funerary posts, but according to the community, they are living things because they, they are part of that continuation of the living. So they look at them, they venerate them. They are not just things you, you uproot from the ground. So no Kigango should leave the post where they are. And even if they fall down, no one moves them away. They can replace them with a new one, but they are not supposed to be taken away. Uh, but later on, things have changed how with art dealers invading the continent, uh, there are a lot of trade in it because people are stealing them. So it seems that this cultural heritage, it's not just about culture. It's also about spirituality, the continuities of life, the community philosophies and the ways in which they understand, you know, life itself, not as rapture, but as a continuum. And yet, in the Western tradition, it seems as if these works of art have more significance because of their aesthetic value or even in terms of their commercial value. And so the argument for restitution is an argument that tries to enhance our understanding of culture in Africa and so on. And I think that seems to be what you are saying, that there is a, a sense in which cultural heritage is viewed through Western lens that is limiting. And that once you come to Africa, cultural heritage is much more broader. It has political significance. It has cultural significance. It has religious, um, spiritual significance and also economic significance. I think that opening up the debate broadly like that would be beneficial. Now tell me about the situation in Kenya. Are we making progress on the whole question of restitution of cultural heritage? Have we done enough? Are we on the right track? Uh, the Kenyan situation is a mixed feeling uh, to be honest. Are we making progress? Yes. Uh, there have been a slight progress because when you look at projects such as uh, International Inventories Program, collecting that database, at least we have idea of what is out there. But they still need to do more even in terms of collection of that database. Now, we have projects such as what is led by uh, Tuaweza Communication, for example, of bringing Africans together to have this conversation at pan-African level. That, that's also a very positive uh, part of this conversation. Then we have the other aspect that are still uh, wanting, uh, lack of legislative policy framework that can guide this, these processes. And you know, one of the things I've learned when I was recently in, in conversation with a number of German museum directors, they expect African museums to be presenting these petitions of bringing back objects. So in Kenyan case, they expect National Museums of Kenya to write to them and say, okay, look, we have identified this number of objects, we want them to come back. And if that is not happening, they're not going to listen to community members who may have legitimate claims, but lack the institutional support to bring back objects. So it's a mixed bag of feeling. So there is work to be done. Is it possible for communities to ask for their products without going through governments. Is it possible, for example, for a community in Kenya to write directly to the British Museum and to ask, bring this? Would they get that? <laughs> no, I'll use a case uh, example of the Pukomo community, which has been writing to the British Museum since 2010, and they didn't even get a single response to their letters until... I intervened, for example, because I represented the National Museums of Kenya. 
And I also leverage on the fact that I know a curator in charge of the African collection. So when I went to her and say, hey, we are doing this international inventors program, we are collecting databases, and we have identified from the Kenyan side the Pokomo community's drum, which is domiciled in your museum. Is it possible for you to talk to the Pokomo king, have a conversation with him, and immediately they were now in conversation? And we even had a Zoom meeting, so they, they started engaging. The king's brother, who is based in Liverpool, then even had access to the drum at the British Museum store. So it is very difficult for communities to get these things without support. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to, and this has to do with the whole question of knowledge production and gaps in knowledge and gaps in research. Um you work in curation, you work with museums, but you also work with researchers and you work with communities. Have you noticed any gaps in knowledge at the community level, as well as any gaps in the research that uh, we need to fill? The gaps are massive, to be honest, both at the community level and also at uh, academic research level. Uh, uh, let me go to the reasons behind this gap. Uh, for At the community level, we have a very young generation. When you look at the Kenya's population pyramid, uh, it's, it's broad at, at the base, and it means those people, for example, 60 years and above, we have a very small number in that. When you take at 70 years and above, who will be called like the Wazes, we have very few of those people. Now, when these objects left, Africa didn't have a written tradition. Most of our communities were still functionally illiterate to a, for a very large extent. And so the losses that took place were only passed on orally. Now, oral histories are subjective. They are subject also to selective amnesia, etc., etc. So communities don't know the nature of loss they suffered as we speak now. Uh, we need to get these databases, go back to communities, talk to the elders, talk to the younger people, and show them what really transpired uh, for them to gain a very positive understanding of how things left their communities. And also because some of these objects are not in use in community as we speak, uh, for them also to have understanding of what those objects were used for at the time when they were in existence, those communities. And that now leads us to the second part of this question, which the role of academia in this. Now, when you look at the colonial archive, we don't have access to it now. There are a lot of academic collaboration that take place between the global north and Africa. So if we move on to the field of objects and, uh, and restitution and work together, we'll have access to the colonial archive, which is domiciled in the global north, but use our own researchers to look through that database, work on the cultural significance of these objects, and find out the importance why these things need to come back, uh, have a connection between the communities and the global north via the academic production that is done. Now, that way we develop a very comprehensive understanding of the losses that happened and the gaps that are created by these losses and the justification for these objects to come back. Very good. So we have gaps at the community level, we have gaps in research. Do you think that part of the challenge, again across Africa, in terms of policy action, could be also a gap in knowledge amongst policymakers and decision makers in government? Is it possible that they have not sufficiently comprehended the significance of this of this heritage? Is, is this a possibility? There's a possibility in that, but you see government also responds to community pressures, and that's why if there's a sufficient build-up of knowledge in communities, uh, you'll find even at the local level, communities will then be petitioning their local councillors, their local MPs, and once MPs then 
are brought in this conversation, the members of parliament, laws will change naturally. So we'll have the, the legislative uh, framework changing because now communities are, are well knowledgeable and therefore they are demanding for things. And so most of our policymakers, unfortunately, at times they're not part of the conversations we're having even when it comes to restitution. And if they are knowledgeable, they lack financial support they need to undertake activities. So you go to Treasury, for example, and say, okay, hey, we have this very important thing we want to do. We need those objects to come back. And the economists uh, and financial experts at the Treasury, they don't see the, think that one is important. So even with the good intention of the policymaker at, at a, at a different, from a different ministry, getting funding then from the, the central government becomes difficult because the mandarins at Treasury do not seem to understand how this is important to the communities. But if we have members of parliament being brought into this conversation because of community pressure, then naturally they are the ones in charge of allocating resources. They will obviously allocate resources for some of these activities to take place. Very good, very good. I, I want us to reflect a little bit about the importance of taking up an African perspective to this whole question of restitution of cultural heritage and whether in fact we are like to make better progress if we don't work in isolation at the national level but instead work collectively at the regional level as well as at the pan-african level have you reflected about this question of the pan-african approach to restitution Africa in general uh, is a very community focused continent and people don't work as individuals, uh, people work as communities and I think we have precedent set during the struggle for independence. One country, Ghana became independent and then Ethiopia was never colonized and the moment Ghana became independent they started supporting others, uh, Ethiopia was supporting other liberation movements in the continent and so it became like, like a snowball so everyone became roped in and there was sufficient pressure from the independent state uh, that led to other uh, countries that were struggling to gain independence to do this. Even as late as the 90s, for example, when South Africa was still under apartheid regime, it was the pressure from African continent by putting sanction on the apartheid regime, countries in the frontline states supporting ANC armed struggle that led now to the pressure to have this country gain independence. It's the same thing with SWAPO in Namibia. And so if we make it a pan-African movement, what will happen in this? At the AU level, for example, there can be a policy where they say, okay, if you are doing even bilateral agreement with the global north, uh, make sure that restitution is at the heart. Whether they come to buy your gold or coffee or tea, make sure that you are talking about righting the wrongs of colonial injustices. So for us to have any sensible agreements with them. Now, that way, if every capital they go to, they are hearing the same story. They will understand that uh, Africa means business. Now, AU can then work with the European Union. They can do the same thing with, with the US government, the same thing with Canadian and Australia. Everywhere where African objects are, if the message is the same, there'll be a very strong will from the continent to get back their, their objects. What about intra-Africa dialogue itself? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't Africa also be having its own dialogue about these issues? Because it's possible that certain you know, heritage that should be in one in one nation state was taken through some strange means to another country. Shouldn't there be also some intra-African discussion and dialogue? Now, now the, the dialogues, that's why I'm laughing, that when you talk about this, I remember I, I worked in Kitale 
And at some point, there were collections from South Africa. And those collections came with a military man who was part of a, a British a punitive expedition in that place. So I could only imagine, when I started becoming part of this conversation of restitution, I could only imagine how he acquired objects from the Zulu, for example, from the Shonas. Uh, they were not probably given to him freely. Uh, I, I can only imagine how he acquired them. And so this conversation needs to happen at intra-Africa level, but there's also need for it to be within intra-country level, because even within countries, there are communities that are claiming objects from their national institution. They feel those objects are culturally significant to them. And uh, I had a conversation with elders in Kisumu, for example, and they say this, that objects have souls, and the souls are domiciled in the communities of makers. And so if you move an object from Kisuma and you are displaying it in Nairobi, that object doesn't have any meaning. The context does not give the object meaning. And therefore, it's good for that object to be moved back to even a cultural center domiciled within the community, where the spirit and soul of the object is also domiciled. So the conversation should be within inter-Africa so that we know there have been a lot of illegal trade in cultural objects in this country, especially during periods of conflict. People take advantage of that and they ship out uh, uh, cultural objects to other parts of the within the continent, which then acts as conduit for these things to leave the continent. But some are obviously retained within those countries. So even as we talk about restitution, looking at it from a global perspective and saying Africa need to bring back its things, there's also need for Africa to have its own dialogue with a view to uh, saying, okay, how many Kenyan objects do we have in South Africa? And how many Zimbabwean objects do we have here? And how can we make sure that we also do our own provenance research and find out how those things left the countries of origin, then take them back? But that's always, when objects come back, it's only part of the story. What do you do with those objects when they come back? Where do you take them? That's now where we involve the community members uh, with a view to create a harmonious way of taking these objects back either to communities of origin or if there's an understanding with the national museums, then you can now retain them in trust uh, or on behalf of the communities. Very, very, very interesting. So I, I want us to shift a little bit and um, discuss the institutional museums and the extent to which the museum is currently constituted on the continent is well-placed to handle the restituted products. Is it ready? Do we need to do more in terms of decolonizing the museum? Are there certain changes that need to happen at the museums so that they can be truly reflect the spirit of, of the continent? Uh, yeah, museums are colonial constructs. We inherited them from the colonial governments. Unfortunately, we didn't work hard to make them African. We still retained the elitist, the top class, the aristocrat nature of the colonial museums, where it's a preserve, it's meant to be enjoyed by a certain class of the community members. So we need to rethink museums in Africa. We need to open them up more to community members so that we engage with people, understand what they really need to see even in our own museums. At times people don't just want to come and see pots, uh, they want to come and see different things, uh, not, not just the pots from their communities. They don't want museums where everything you don't touch. They need things that are more interactive, things they can, if it's a pot, let me be able to handle it. If it's get broken, it's sad, but that's how it, things are. So we need to have a, a different set of African museums that respond to the needs of the community. Now, when you we inherited these museums and we are stuck with them, 
other parts of the world, people are moving. There are museums of new things, museums of technology, museum of that. Here we don't even have, for example, in Kenya, we don't even have museum of Jokali. Yet there's a lot of productivity within that sector and we need to capture that. And we throw away things that we are supposed to capture and then exhibit. And so when technology moves, for example, now even if you want to see the original mobile phones, we don't have a place where you can send them. So the younger generation that are now using touchscreen cannot understand how big the initial mobile phones were, how expensive they were. So we cannot even present the evolution of that to our own people, to challenge them so that they can become more creative even in making new things. Because I think the museum should be a, a place where memories are kept, but it should also be a place where new invention can be generated by looking at things that you have made, and then now it challenges you to generate new things that respond to your own needs. So the museums of technologies, the museums of medicine, yeah. the museums of uh, economies and, yeah. and the various sectors of our economy and, and the ways in which our society evolves. Very, very important. And that the museum itself is, is dynamic. dynamic it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's not static. The knowledge itself is always being produced and archived. And I like your comment about memory, not just for its own sake, yeah. but also for innovation. innovation. Yeah, for exciting yeah. the imagination. Imagination yeah, and so yeah. forth and so on, because that's actually how we enable uh, human progress. Yeah. I wanted you to comment a little on human remains, uh, because I have noticed when I read around restitution, many, many communities are asking for the human remains of their ancestors that are domiciled in the global north. Could you comment about the importance of this? <sighs> this is uh, always a very emotive topic. I find it sad. I also find it absurd that there are people who enjoyed keeping remains of others, but at the same time, they also repatriate even bones of their own dead soldiers from fields far away. Uh, and they forget one thing, that in Africa, there's a very strong connection between the living and the dead. Uh, people believe that the, the dead have influence on their day-to-day -day activities. Hence, when you see people dying in, in America or in other far places, and families make a lot of contribution to bring back that body to be interred in the places of their birthplace. Yeah, because there's a connection between the people who are living now and the departed kin, even including those who died long time ago. So the West call them human remains. And they're not remains, they're dead people. And any dead person need to be buried in their places of choice. The community decides where someone should be buried until those people get decent burial, until they are repatriated back, they are sent back to communities where they came from and buried. There are those who believe that the calamities that befell them now if things are not going on well, if they're having droughts, if there are mysterious illnesses that they can't explain, they will always attribute them to the restless souls and spirits of their dead relatives. And so with the technological advance of the West, they can always dismiss this and say, okay, those are fetish beliefs. But for these other communities, those are the reality of their life. They need to bury their, their dead people, their dead relatives, so that they can have a closure and they can have sites where this commemoration of the dead can take place. Because we know people spend a lot of money even just commemorating their dead relatives. And there are rituals that you have to undertake. I know communities like in Western Kenya, before you, est you establish a new home, you have to commemorate your parents are dead, then you have to go and do a commemoration of their dead parents before you can now leave that compound. And you see, if you don't have a compound where you can do that commemoration, it means if you build it without the commemoration and things started happening in your life, you'll always attribute them to the fact that you did not give your dead relative proper recognition and proper uh, remembrance. Absolutely. And community claims are legitimate, and you've really put it rather strongly, that people should be buried where their community 
would like them to be buried. And so long as our people are in museums in the global north, their souls are restless. Uh, they need to be brought back home and given decent burial and uh, creation of sites for um, even the settling of the mind and settling of the soul. And again, you you know, you have said that in Africa, life is a continuum. There is no rupture between the living and the dead. Uh, and that that belief system, again, is very legitimate and it's right. It's the dislocation, I think, of that belief system and the assumption that the Western knowledge system is the only legitimate knowledge system that has created challenges for the country. So I think that the work that you're doing is very, very important in this regard. I'll just add something, the issue of belief in the souls. Uh, when we were in, in the course doing community engagement as part of the International Inventories Program, and we were talking about these objects, and one elder said, oh, we knew it. We knew that at one point, uh, the souls of these objects will make whoever took them restless. And now as you are coming, we have now understood that already there's spirit of restlessness on the other side because the object's souls are now demanding to come back. Absolutely. <laughs> so that our people yeah. who are in Western museums yeah are actually speaking and articulating their wishes to come back, uh, to come back yes. and therefore creating a restlessness yes. in the global north for action. So again, thank you thank you very much, uh, Juma, for uh, enlightening us on this issue. Uh, I don't know whether there's anything else you'd like to say with regard to the whole question of restitution of cultural heritage in Africa and um, uh, what you would like to call upon us as researchers, as media, as policy makers to be able to do going forward. Africa will have a very strong uh, hand to negotiate this if they don't depend on the West for funding. If you are a beggar, then you, you also don't have choices. You will be fed with whatever people decide to give you. And I know this continent has uh, wealth. It has people, wealthy people. They have their foundations domiciled here. We have governments that can take this as a very serious exercise. Just the same way they supported liberation movement in other parts of the continent, I think the same willpower need to be used now by mobilizing resources internally to give us a very strengthened hand. We need our researchers, for example, to be funded to do this, but the funding should come from our own internal sources from the, within the continent in a way that if we say now we are partnering, we tell the other people to also look for their funding because we also have our funding, and then we talk as equals. Now, if we depend on them for funding, it also mutes our voice to an extent that we are never taken seriously. So this is about our dignity as a people. We need look at our internal sources so that we gain our voice globally. So Africa needs to drive the narrative on cultural heritage gestation yeah. uh, in Africa and that their voices should be clear and that the funding as much as possible should come from the continent itself because it should be a continental agenda. Yeah not a Western agenda for Africa, yeah. but really a continental agenda for, for Africa. And I think that uh, what I'm hearing from you also is the need for multi-sectoral you know, uh, partnerships. So you have the public uh, institutions, you have the private institutions, you have the community institutions, you have researchers, academia, you have intergenerational collaborations and so on to make this, this possible. So again, Juma, I, I really want to thank you for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, and I want to encourage you to continue doing the work that you're doing. You're doing amazing, amazing, amazing work. I'm sure that we'll have another opportunity to discuss with you about these important issues uh, for Africa. So again, thank you so much.
This concludes our episode of this podcast with Mr. Juma Ondeng. Thank you for listening to the Africa Speaking Podcast. Join us in our next episode, brought to you by Triza Communications. My name is Kimani Njogu. For any comments and views, you can reach us through our website, www.africaspeaking.org. You can also reach us on Facebook, Tuaweza Communications, or on our Twitter handle, at Tuaweza.coms. You can also write to us on email, info at africaspeaking.org.